Bibles to Psalm 127. We're going to read from there in just a moment. Let me echo a very happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. When I was, when Keith first asked me about speaking on Father's Day, I had two initial conflicting feelings. The first was absolutely, I would love to speak on Father's Day because Humanly speaking, apart from marriage to Paula, there is no area of my life that brings me more joy than being a dad. So, of course, I would love to speak on fatherhood on Father's Day. But then the next feeling that came was the sinking feeling of, I'm not that good at this. And I have very little experience. We have three children under the age of 13. And to prove that I'm not too good at this, this kind of went public last week. Uh, when Pastor Peter was talking about, from First Peter, taskmasters, there was a certain 12-year-old in my vicinity who was nodding yes and pointing at me. Uh, so I knew that would give me a whole lot of credibility with you guys the next week when I'm talking about fatherhood. But, but seriously, for, for all the joys of being a father, I can't think of anything more humbling and challenging in my life. I can't think of anything that I more frequently bump into my failure than in the category of fatherhood. And so I believe that God's word here in these psalms is going to challenge us as fathers. And, and I believe it's going to, before we're done, give us hope and give us a vision for fatherhood moving forward. I'm going to read through Psalm 127 and 28. I'm going to read through rather quickly because we're going to come back through and slow down and read through it again. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you. Because as fathers here this morning, we came as fathers and we will leave as fathers. But here before your word, we are children. And you are our father. And so we pray, give to us the kinds of things that a good father gives to his children, the kinds of things that you indeed delight to give to your children, wisdom, encouragement, understanding, vision, and faith. Oh, fill our hearts, Lord, so that we can say when we leave, it was good for us to be here. It was good to be here with our father and to hear your word over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is from the biography of Pistol Pete Maravich. 
On Tuesday, January 5th, 1988, the morning Pete died, this column appeared under Bruce Smith's byline in the Rally News and Observer. Son of a gun, look at Jason. Tuesday turns, there just might be another pistol smoking down in Covington, Louisiana. Already, Pete Maravich's eight-year-old son, Jason, is brandishing Derringer-caliber skills in midget league basketball. He has great talent, proud Papa Pete said in rally last week. This is the week before Pete Maravich died. He has great talent. It just depends on what he will do with that God-given talent and how far he will take it. Jason started at age six, three years later than when Press Maravich handed Pete a basketball and said, play. Jason is just like I was, Maravich said. He took basketball up two years ago, and it was like a baby duck taking to water. I taught him how to shoot, and he can really shoot. He made 27 of 30 free throws at camp when he had turned just eight. He's built like me, big hands, big feet, long arms. He can do what he wants to in basketball. It will depend on how much commitment he has to the game. Pete's other son, Joshua, five, is into soccer. But just in case his interest should change, Dad erected a six-foot basketball goal in the backyard for Joshua to use at his convenience, of course. Now, I don't know what grabbed you in that little episode, but what I hear is the transfer of passion. I love seeing, imagining Press Maravich with his three-year-old boy, Pete. He hands him the ball and he says, play. And then he plays. And then he gets older. And then he has a six-year-old son named Jason. And he hands a ball to him. And he says, play. And then his other son, I even love the intentionality that goes further to lure his soccer-loving son into what I would argue is the far superior sport of basketball. <laughs> but that's, that's a different text. So I'm not going to make that argument this morning. But this is a transfer of passion. We are intentional about transferring our passions, our convictions, the things that sit in us deeply that's really one of the defining features of a passion. It's that thing about which you can't seem to shut up. It's the thing that you want most to get into the lives of your children. Matter of fact, you want so badly for that value, that passion, you consider it to be something that almost runs in your bloodstream. And you want it to get in them so much that maybe if they don't know about that area of life or if they haven't experienced that, you might even be embarrassed. Now you imagine someone... Rachel Ray and her daughter grows up and she's 14 years old and doesn't know what a spatula is. That's embarrassing. <laughs> Your mom's one of the greatest cooks on planet Earth, right? That's embarrassing. Leonardo da Vinci, all these wonderful art. That he's driving out one after another and then you have a son and he's 14 years old and he's drawing stick figures. And, and he has a crush on the girl at the desk next to him and so when he wants to write a fancy letter, he writes it in bubble letters. You know, that's embarrassing. You can imagine Leonardo pulling his son aside. You know, Fabio. I don't know his name, but <laughs> Fabio. What is this? We're Da Vinci's. We don't use bubble letters. It's embarrassing. This is a passion. This runs in our bloodstream. We're Da Vinci's. We transfer our passions, these things that are important to us. The father in Psalm 127 and 28 has a vision. If you asked him, what do you want for your children? What's your vision for your family? He has ready answers. And so as fathers, I believe as we come to this passage of Scripture, God wants us to go back to the fundamentals. 
There's some fundamental mindsets that we, when we embrace them, are going to serve our families and our children, not only in the years where many of us are, where there are children still in the household, but even when we graduate into that elite fraternity of grandfatherhood, these will continue to serve us as fathers. And the first mindset that I believe comes through this passage is a mindset of humble dependency. Look at the first two verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I love these two chapters, 11 verses. I can easily leave these two verses behind as I read forward. I read this whole passage. By the time I get to the end of 128, I am so excited and envisioned. I mean, I'm a warrior in verse 3 and 4, and I've got everybody around the table. I've got this fruitful wife in my house, and I've got children like olive shoots around the table, and I'm blessed because I fear God, and then there's prosperity in the family and in Israel, and I'm growling, and I'm I want to chest bump somebody, and I'm so thrilled and excited about all the vision that comes to me. And, I, and then I come back to verses 1 and 2, and God says, you don't have what it takes. You can't actually do this stuff. This requires a humble dependency. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, don't read this the wrong way. This is not saying, why build a house? We don't need home builders anymore. Here's what we do. We pray and suddenly just things start to come into place and a foundation is laid and all of that. No. This, in other words, when, when the Israelites read this text, they didn't go running to the people watching on the walls at night and say, you guys didn't get the memo? No more watchmen over the city. You didn't hear it. The Lord watches over the city. No, it's not meant to, to have the effect that men stop working Men stop investing in their families. It's not meant for you to get rid of your alarm system or to not get human builders involved when you buy a piece of property. No, that's not what it's aimed at. It's actually confronting a mindset, a mindset that as fathers we can easily drift into, and that mindset is self-sufficiency, pride. God is calling me here in this passage to a posture to a mindset of humble dependency. And you can see what the context is. Because right after he talks about this, con- this concept and this mindset of humble dependency, he moves from there into, of all contexts, the family. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, I think one of the reasons this is a challenge is because we live in a quick-fix world. And as fathers, we can be very mechanically oriented, can't we? I can fix this, I can work on this, I can do this. We live in the eHow generation. I don't know how many eHow.com fans we have here, but I frequent the site often. eHow is basically a website that tells you how to do all things conceivable. Initially, when I was thinking about how to describe eHow, I thought of saying that it's a website that tells you everything, how to do everything except walk on water. But then for kicks and giggles, I typed in on eHow how to walk on water, and voila! Yes, I know it sounds impossible. You may be thinking you need supernatural powers or divine parentage, but actually you have multiple options. And then it gives you five different ways to walk on water, and spoiler alert, only two of them involve frozen lakes. But this is, you know, and now eHow, eHow has come to the rescue for parents. We can tell you eHow 
to raise your children. How to raise, there's an article, how to raise charitable children. Anybody interested? How to raise charitable children. How to raise happy and well-adjusted children. You almost feel guilty for not clicking that article. What do you want to do? Raise unhappy, imbalanced children? Click. Find out how to raise happy and well-adjusted children. Find out. How to raise environmentally friendly children. How to raise independent children. Now, I didn't click there, but that's got to be a short article, right? <laughs> Leave them alone. The end. <laughs> how to raise children with a positive attitude. And somebody even won up that article. How to change your child from a pessimist to an optimist. And my problem is, I'm too pessimistic to even read the article. So I haven't had a chance to read them, and I would, I would imagine that there are probably some, some decent tips in those articles, but what you're probably not going to find on ehow.com is, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, your labor is in vain, your watching is in vain, you must humbly depend on God. We are parenting children. We're not programming computers. We're not breaking wild animals. These are image bearers. They have, they have a will. They have emotions. They have a mind given to them by God. They are wired for worship. They have innate instincts to build altars. You're not going to have to teach them how to erect an altar of worship any more than a beaver has to give a seminar on how to build a dam. It's instinctive. They know how to do this. They build altars. They are fundamentally worshipers. They have a fundamental God orientation that takes shaping, teaching, instruction for us to work with that. Now, what does that mean? That means this, that fatherhood is not simply about diagnosing and fixing. You diagnose it, you fix it. There's a new problem. You diagnose it, you fix it. You fix it, you fix it. It's not about diagnosing and fixing. Too often underneath, I think, my orthodox answers about parenting. Matt, what do you believe about parenting? Well, I believe it's God's work. Unless the Lord builds a house, right? That's it's orthodox. But my actual parenting, if you look at my actual parenting, you come up with a different statement of faith. Often. My words, my arguments my techniques, my disciplinary methods, my one-on-one -on -one talks, my date nights with daughter, my creative ideas, my ability to connect with them, that's what's going to make them right in life. That's what's going to make them right with God. These are functional convictions of self-sufficient men. And we labor at this and we start to think, give me an afternoon in a book and I'll turn my child into an, an optimist. I'll turn him from a pessimist into an optimist, and then reality sets in, doesn't it? And our son or our daughter goes through a hard season, and they're resisting instruction and input, and the techniques that worked when they were five aren't working anymore, and I can't loosen them up with my jokes because they don't think I'm funny anymore. It, the techniques aren't working, and we start to come to the end of ourselves, and maybe we see some kind of outward conformity to the standards. So the grass got cut. You happy, Dad? Right, so I did it, so I said sorry. But there's no internal heart change. Father, did you ever get to a place in your parenting where you come to the end of yourself? And sometimes it doesn't take many years in parenting before you figure out, I'm out of my league. 
and he's only five. I can't, I can't harness this. How do, I, how do I deal with this? Ever felt that before? And then they get even older and they become more complex and more self-aware and more self-conscious and more in tune with their feelings, their environment, and how people think about them. And then parents go to sleep worrying what's growing in my daughter's heart while I'm sleeping. What is my son doing at the neighbor's house down the street? I remember some of the things I did at the neighbor's house down the street. What's he doing down the street right now? And you're tempted to bug your daughter's cell phone. Right? And then you wake up the next morning and you spend 14 hours on ehow.com trying to figure out, how do I rope this in? How do I make sure that he's not going to rebel, that he's not going to be addicted to lust? How? Is there an article somewhere on here that's going to tell me how to get my daughter to feel that grace is amazing? And the answer that this text gives in the first two verses is very simple and it's very surprising. And it's this. You want to get your daughter to feel that grace is amazing? Depend on the Lord in prayer and get some rest. He gives, it says in verse 2, he gives to his beloved sleep. I heard author and pastor John Piper say some few years ago, said a father has to come to a place where he realizes his techniques and his methods as a father can't change the hearts of his children. And when he comes to that realization, he has to turn away from his children, run into his bedroom, fall on his face, and pray to God. And say, God, rescue my children. Make their hearts your own. Cause your word to sink in. Cause the seeds that we're sowing to bring life. Do that, Lord, because I'm out of ideas. And I can't make this happen. What does that sound like? It sounds like humble dependency, doesn't it? Sounds like someone who has come to grips with the fact that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I think prayer is an application here. Whenever we pray for our families, there's a sense in which what we're doing is holding up a sign that says, I can't do this. You can do this. You are faithful. You are strong. You have their hearts in the palm of your hand. Do this, Lord. I'm depending on you. And so a father who is praying is depending on God as he labors. And we are called to labor. Our next mindset is grateful stewardship. Look at verses three through five. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the, of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In ancient culture, when someone wanted to find out how rich you were, he didn't count your money, he counted your children. Children were seen as a reward from God, heritage, an inheritance from God himself, which is why you go back to one of the, one of the vast and most significant turning points in all of the Bible, in Genesis 15, and God comes to Abraham, the father of the faith, and he says, your reward is going to be great. And Abraham, in his culture, cannot even conceive of riches apart from children, which comes through in his answers. How can I possibly be the rich man you promise I'm going to be when we can't have any children? I cannot even conceive of riches apart from children. To which God said, oh, you're going to have some children. Look into the sky. Look at the stars. 
Can you count them? You're going to have a boatload of children. Many are going to be in your train, in your offspring. Abraham interpreted this as the greatest of all blessings. Children are not only spoken of here as a blessing, but as a stewardship, as a responsibility. Derek Kidner writes, and he's commenting on stewardship of sons in these verses, and he says, It is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. <laughs> Amen to that. You see, the, the children, it says, the children of one's youth are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. What the father does, and the father is the warrior in this verse, so let the growling commence. The, the father is a warrior in this verse, and what the father does with these arrows in verse 4 is going to determine whether in verse 5 he's going to be able to stand in the gates where the enemy taunts unashamed. There's an investment. There's something he's got to get done with these arrows in his youth, he is a young father. Actually, by the time we're done with verse 5, the kids are not arrows anymore. The arrow metaphor is left behind. Now they're not arrows. Now they're standing. Now they've come of age, and they're old enough to stand in the gates where the enemy are, enemies are, to stand next to their father, and he is standing there unashamed next to his sons. These boys are grown. Matter of fact, a whole lot of time has moved in these couple of verses. In verse 3 and 4, the children of one's youth. This is a young dad. And his, his, his sons, his children, are probably toddlers. They're very young. And by the time you get to the end of verse 5, he is gray and his sons have come of age. And they can stand on their own two legs. And they probably have their own quiver. They probably have their own arrows. They're in the gates of the enemy. Now, we live in a much different culture and a much different world than the one that David and Solomon lived in and the one that even the settlers and the ranchers from 100 years ago lived in when you could lose your life when you're contending for water rights on your property. It's a different day, right? You're living back in that day. It's, it's pretty helpful to have a bunch of sons behind you toting rifles when it's time to get the water flowing in your direction. We don't live in that day. Leslie Allen brings us, I think, into the cultural situation of standing at the gates. The psalm concentrates on the particular value of sons born to a man not too late in life. They would be old enough and burly enough to protect their father in his declining years. If he were wrongly accused in the law court inside the city gate, they would rally around ensuring that he was treated justly and defending his interests in a way denied to loners in society, such as widows and orphans. They were God's arrows against injustice within the local community. Now, most of us never had to do this for our dad, right? But that's not the high point of the psalm. The high point of the psalm is not, hey, isn't it great that you can teach your boys how to wrestle so that later on in your life you have boys who can throw down? That's not the, the high point. The high point is, is not, praise God, our children know karate. It's, praise God, our children fear the Lord. Praise God, they worship the God of Israel. That's what this verse is aiming at. Praise God that the one that God calls an enemy, the one that dad calls an enemy, I call an enemy. And I'll stand there in the gates with dad. Because we call the same enemy our common enemy in the cause of the covenant family of God. We stand together. That's the goal. Christian fathers, feel this vision. Feel this vision. Imagine 
depending on how old you are, 20 years, 30, maybe 40 years from now, you're up in age, and there you are at the gates of the enemy where he taunts, where his voice is heard, and you look around you, and there they are. Children, your sons, standing with you against the enemy of our souls. What a vision. This is our calling. This is our stewardship. This is our responsibility. What a privilege it is. Trusting in God. There they are, living for God's glory. I love basketball, and we've watched Pistol Pete highlights until we're blue in the face. We've watched Magic highlights, Clyde Drexler highlights, Julius Irving highlights, all of us, the whole family, watching on the computer the highlights. We love that. But this is where it's at. This is it. Raising up a covenant family that loves God, treasures his word, stands together against a common enemy, God's enemy. We receive our children as rewards, and our grateful response as fathers is to steward them, to shape them, to mold them, so that their faith is strong when we're old. Third mindset, an unflinching hope. So much is happening in these 11 verses. Passage basically began by saying, if you don't do this, namely, if you don't depend on the Lord, you're wasting your time. And then the next point was, if you have a child, if you have children, you are rich beyond words. Steward those children, raise them up for God's glory. And, and then the passage begins to, I think, sweeten because outroll these promises. These next four verses are just laden with promises. And it's as though those promises are contingent on only one thing. Does the Father fear God? See that in verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. In verse 4, after it's settled the promises, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. It's as though the text comes to you as fathers, and it says, do you fear God? And as soon as you say yes, extends its hand and says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Who walks in his ways, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Just promises rolling over the top of the man who fears God. It's a beautiful thing. I want to add a qualifier, not because I want to, but because I'm afraid that you might be distracted. Because you might be wondering, does this mean, when we read these promises, they sound unconditional. They sound just, the Father fears the Lord and outroll the promises. Does this mean that all of the children of all believers throughout all of time will have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? will hear the gospel and turn. Is this a carte blanche? It automatically happens. Isn't that great? All of the children of all believers. And the answer is no. Not even all of Solomon's children seem to have been submitted to God as the Lord. But let me quickly qualify the qualifier. Let me quickly add something else. God loves to do this. God loves, and it's his pattern throughout the Bible, to transfer faith from generation to generation within families. 
It's his normal way of doing it. Matter of fact, he names himself in the Old Testament after this reality. He is the God of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not allergic to patterns. He doesn't get bored doing things the same way over and over and over. It's the reason that the meteorologist can predict when the sun's going to rise. Because God loves to do it the same way, day after day after day, and the seasons change year after year after year because God is not, does not have ADD. He's not just looking for some new random thing to do today because I'm bored with doing it the same way all the time. No, he loves to transfer faith from generation, from fathers to sons, from believing parents to children, year after year after year. It's the whole story of Israel. Don't over-spiritualize this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be the equivalent of Steve and Kurt and Liam, Roberts. That would be the same as Glenn and Sam and Titus. Ebuyer, the God of Glenn, Sam, and Titus. <laughs> and so you would, you would see the, you know, the God of, of Steve and Kurt and Liam, and Liam's children would be the Liamites, and God would make a covenant. He would make the Liamites a nation, and he would covenant himself to work with particular blessing in the family of the Liamites. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what God does. He works in this way, and he does it in the midst of families. He delights to do this. It's his normal way. It's his right-handed way of working. I think we can be so scared of name-it-claim-it theology. Look, and I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of prosperity gospel teaching. But I think we can be so afraid of name-it-claim-it theology that we're afraid to look at these blessings and say, this is going to be our story. This, these four verses, that's going to be how the Lord does it in our family. This is the way God loves to do it in our families. God is giving us hope. We have every reason to hope. As soon as a son or daughter in our family goes wayward, we start to wonder if he or she ever even knew Christ. Rather than clinging to hope and saying, God, you are able You are able to bring him back to faith. You are able to build the house while I'm asleep. You are able to make them olive shoots, even though it looks like they're withering on the vine. You can bring them back to the table. The prodigals can be brought home because you are faithful and you are powerful. And how many stories are there like that in this room where you looked at your son and daughter and said, there was a season when if you would have asked me, I'd say he's long gone. She is long gone. And you would have read, perhaps, these verses, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's happening. Don't let let cynicism take away our ability to have hope in the promises of God. As long as there is a God, there is hope. As long as there is a God, there is hope for our children, for our families. Paul and I went on a little 15th anniversary vacation last month. And one of the books we brought so that we could read it out loud was a book by Marilyn Robinson called Home. It's a wonderful story. It's a story about an aged Presbyterian minister who's now retired and he's 
He's declining in his health rapidly. He can't take care of himself, so his daughter Glory lives with him and takes care of him. All of his children are grown. One of them is a prodigal. He has one daughter and four sons. Their prodigal's name is Jack. And you just hear the hope in this little portion of description of this man's heart. Every Sunday when the boys were home, her father would stand at the front of the church waiting for the pews to fill. Her brothers would file in, just three of them. And her father would wait a moment more, watching the doorway, glancing up at the balcony. Then his head would fall to one side, regret and forgiveness in one gesture. Sometimes, rarely, he would nod to himself and smile. And then they knew Jack was there. And that the sermon would be about joy and the goodness of God, no matter what the text was. You know the hope in that old minister with a prodigal son? He's here where God's word is preached. The sermon's going to be about joy, no matter what the text is. You may have wayward children. They may be young and wayward. They may be old and wayward. They may have denounced Christ. They may be indifferent to Christian faith. This passage says there's hope because God can build a house while we're asleep. Pastor Steve Shank oversees a number of churches in Sovereign Grace and he talks about his grandfather and he says his grandfather was the most godly and hardworking man he's ever known. But his grandfather had three children and none of them were faithful to Jesus Christ. And he's advancing in his years as well. Eventually his daughter came to Christ and then Steve Shank led his own father to Christ. But then there was Uncle Fred, and Uncle Fred's life was a wreck. He had been in and out of jail. He was completely undependable. He lied almost every time he opened his mouth. Couldn't be trusted. He would disappear. He would ask you for money and disappear. And the father, during Fred's disappearance, actually, his father died. His grandson, Steve Shank, was at the bedside of of his grandpa, and he said, was commending his grandpa for his faith and his faithfulness to God, and he said, Grandpa, how can I pray for you? And not surprisingly, Grandpa quoted 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Your prayer is, is not only an expression of, of dependence, Prayer is an expression of hope. We pray because we know God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is good. God is loving. He loves my family. And so we pray. I love the fact that that grandpa, even on his deathbed, was saying, it can happen. It can happen. I don't even know where he is, but it can happen. Years later, Steve Shank got a letter from Uncle Fred. He thought it was going to be another request for money. Fred had gone to a canyon in Arizona and sat on a cliff with the intention to jump. Steve Shank described it in this way. Guilt, shame, a trail of shattered lives pressed upon him so hard he began to sob uncontrollably. He resolved his life wasn't worth living. As he sat there, the God of mercy, of hope, Jesus the Savior, began to work. Fred's letter said, I began to reflect back over things that my father taught me early on, but that I rejected. 
Instead of jumping, he began to cry out, Jesus, if you're real, please forgive me. Please forgive me. He began to confess everything he ever did, and Shank said, so he must have been there a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Then Uncle Fred said, he began to sing. He began to cry new tears. He remembered what his father told him over and over about being reconciled to a God who is merciful and who forgives sins. And he repented and turned to Christ and was saved. And he went home to the woman he was living in immorality with and he told her his experience and he led her to Christ. And a week later in their backyard, they got married. Steve Shank's finishing sentence was, he leads a Bible study in a small church in upstate Washington. The Lord worked in a way that the passion was transferred. A grandpa who had been holding out the ball to Uncle Fred year after year after year, and after he dies, Fred takes the ball. Fred caught the passion. The father was dead, never saw it. He died hoping the son caught his passion We have a firm hope, fathers. We have a firm hope knowing that this really happens. Passion for Christ and spiritual fruitfulness is a blessing that God gives to our children. We have every reason to hope. And finally, a long-range vision. Psalm 128, verse 5 and 6. The Lord bless you from Zion... May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is a God-centered view of fatherhood from start to finish. It begins where God says, as it were, to fathers, I can build the house. I can make it so that your labor is not in vain. I am powerful. I am able But here at the end, there is a vast panorama before us as we realize it's not just my house that the Lord is building. My house is to find a place in a much larger house, in a much larger family. Leslie Allen comments, from the private concerns of the first half, the psalm has moved beyond what might have seemed a little boxes mentality to an expression of communal solidarity solidarity, relating to the spiritual center of the nation. That simply means it wasn't just about his family. It was about God's people as a whole. A, a Christian family is truly a glorious thing. And it's our call, it's our particular responsibility as fathers to nourish our children, to admonish them in Christian faith. But it is not the end goal. At the end of the day, the kingdom of God is bigger than my living room. Way bigger than my living room. At the end of the day, the kingdom of God is bigger than Lakeview Christian Center. Way bigger than Lakeview Christian Center. God is gathering a people from the four corners of the world, to borrow a phrase. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. God is gathering them for worship. So Christian families, there's no 
There's no battle, there's no contest in the Bible between Christian families and the local church. There's no contest in the Bible between Christian families and the universal church and what God is doing in the world. Churches are planted and Bibles go out and missionaries are launched. That's all connected to Christian families. Christian families have an interest in that. Christian families don't live isolated from church life. You want to know what electrifies the heart of this father? It's when you pray, not only that his family would be flourishing, fruitful vines, olive shoots around the table, but when you pray for the good and the prosperity of God's people. The peace and the prosperity of Jerusalem. You want to give me a lump in my throat? You tell me you're praying for my children. Tell me you have been praying for my family. You want to make that lump twice the size? Tell me that when you're praying for my family, you're praying that the older they get, the more they'll love the church. That as they get older, they'll be serving, they'll be on greeting teams, they'll be singing on Sunday mornings, they'll be praying for people at the end of meetings, they'll be writing VBS skits, they'll be contributing to building funds, they'll be engaging in the life of God's people outside of the four walls of our house on Elmwood Parkway. They'll have a big vision of what God is doing beyond our family, including our family to be sure, but beyond our family. The father portrayed in Psalms 127 and 28 has ambitions. He has dreams. If you asked him, what do you want for your children? What's your vision for your family? He would have ready answers. What do I want? Here's what I want. I want children like arrows in my quiver. I want children who are useful in battle. What do I want? I want sons who can stand up at the gates of the city in the face of a scoffing enemy. I want my wife to be a happy, fruitful vine whose life and words bring blessing and grace into every aspect of our life as a family. I want children who are like olive shoots, joyful, spiritually vigorous children. I want to see my family find a place in the gathering of God's people. When the day is done, at the end of history, when all of God's people are gathered together and we are praising God in the streets of Zion, I want to hear four familiar voices. That's what I want. That's my dream. It's my ambition. It's the ambition of this father. But here's the reality that comes and confronts that dream. Reality number one, you can't do that. I can't do that. I can't accomplish those things. My methods, my techniques, my tactics, my parenting, all of that. I can't accomplish those things. Reality number two, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. And he can build my house. He can build your house. He can make it so that our labor and our watchfulness is not in vain. He can fulfill his promises despite our failures. Say that again. He can fulfill his promises despite our failures failures. I think it's important to connect Old Testament promises to New Testament fulfillment. We can be sure about these promises because all of the promises of God have their yes and amen where? In Christ. All of the promises of God are ours in through our relationship with Jesus, because of what Christ has accomplished, we can take God's good promises to the bank, cash it in, 
my, not only my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, but my home is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the sweetest technique, the sweetest article, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's no surprise that Jesus is called the Lord in the New Testament. He is given the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is the Lord of Psalm 127, the Lord that builds our house or else we're laboring in vain. No wonder he's the one that says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're laboring in vain apart from me. We have a Christ We've turned to him. He's given his blood for us. Will he not also graciously give us all things, including a family that stands before the throne of God, singing God's praises? He will, and we can believe it because of the gospel. Let me say to single mothers, the Lord can build your house. I had front row seats of living in the family when father dies and a mom has three teenagers and has to go back to school and get a job. And if you were looking from the outside in, in that season of time, you would have said, the olive shoots are drying up and the fruitful vine is withering around the table. But the Lord was at work God is a father to the fatherless. You're not laboring alone. The Lord of the house is at work. Trust him. Dads, I think if we look at our fathering long enough and our failures long enough, we're gonna go, wanna go find a cliff somewhere in Arizona. Right? It's, it's not always a pretty picture. It's, it's often an ugly picture if it weren't for the grace of God. And that's a huge if, if it weren't for the grace of God. But God is gracious. He is a Lord of grace. So we can labor, men. We can labor with a mindset of dependence, stewardship, hope. We can labor with a future expectation that God is going to complete the work that he's begun in our households in bringing spiritual prosperity not only to your family, but to his people, to Jerusalem, to those who will gather on the final day and sing the praises of our God. Amen.